Welcome, fellow true crime enthusiasts, to today's case file, Murder in Modesto, the rigor mortis smile of Scott Peterson. This is not just another episode. This is the grand finale of a six-part deep dive, where we've dissected every layer of the enigma surrounding the tragic fates of Lacey and Connor Peterson, and the man at the center of it all, Scott Peterson. Welcome to Body of Crime, your go-to true crime podcast, where we plunge headfirst into the gripping world of criminal mysteries. Join your hosts, Jose Medina, Crystal Garcia, and Alicia Anaya, as we deliver the full stories, immersing you in the heart of each case. With spine-chilling cases, in-depth analysis, captivating interviews, and a comprehensive examination of the evidence, embark on a thrilling journey with us as we explore bone-chilling cases from around the globe. Whether you're a seasoned true crime enthusiast or a fresh face in the genre, we guarantee to keep you on the edge of your seat. So put on your detective hat, grab your notepad, and get ready to dive into the thrilling world of body of crime. For those just tuning in to the body of crime, you're stepping into a narrative that has unraveled the very fabric of a community, exposing secrets, lies, and betrayals that reverberated far beyond the boundaries of Modesto, California. We urge you to trace our steps back through the previous episodes to witness the full horrifying scope. Without a shred of physical evidence, a narrative emerged stitched together by the threads of circumstantial evidence. Was it enough? A jury thought so, but the court of public opinion remains torn. Is Scott Peterson the cold-blooded killer painted by the prosecution, or is he a scapegoat persecuted for his indiscretions? December 24th, 2002, Christmas Eve, a day of joy overshadowed by a chilling mystery. Lacey Peterson vanishes, leaving behind questions, fears, and a husband who soon finds himself ensnared in a web of suspicion. Amber Fry's emergence, Scott's confrontations, and the gruesome discovery at the Berkeley Marina. Each revelation turned the screws tighter on a story already teetering on the edge. The courtroom became a battleground. Emotions ran high, alliances shattered, families torn apart. The defense and prosecution locked horns, each vying for the truth or perhaps their version of it. The gavel's final strike sealed Scott Peterson's fate, but the echoes of that decision continue to reverberate. Today, we're taking the plunge, diving headfirst into the abyss of Scott Peterson's psyche. We're peeling back the layers, seeking the man behind the mask, the truth behind the rigor mortis smile. Yet, as we delve deeper, remember, the human mind is a maze, and while we can chart a course, some corridors remain shrouded in shadow. To understand Scott Peterson's mind, we cannot start on December 24th of 2002, the day he killed his wife, Lacey, and dumped her in the San Francisco Bay. We can't start on December 6th, the day that Scott decided to buy a boat. No, we can't even start on November 20th, the day he began dating and courting Amber Fry. We can't even start on October 21st, 1972, the day that Scott Peterson was born. In order to trace the rot to its beginning, the ground zero, we have to go all the way back to 1945, the day that Scott Peterson's grandfather, John Latham, was horrifically killed by a former employee, Robert Sewell. John owned a tire and salvage lot in San Diego, California, and on December 20th of 1945, while preparing to close shop, Robert Sewell bashed in John's head with a rusty pipe. Robert had been fired a few days prior and had returned to rob the business owner. He would get away with $600. 
But four years later, he would be arrested and sentenced to life in prison and sent to San Quentin, the same prison that Scott Peterson would be housed in 60 years later. Dr. Keith Ablau, a forensic psychologist who worked for Court TV and the author of Inside the Mind of Scott Peterson, states it best when he says that Scott's broken psyche began to shatter long before he was born. Scott's mother, Jacqueline Latham, who would later be known as Jackie Peterson, would have barely been two years old when her father was brutally murdered a few days before Christmas. Jackie's mother, Lita Helen Hickson Latham, unable to handle the trauma of losing her husband so young and with two other boys to care for, put all three of her children in an orphanage, the Nazareth House in San Diego, California. The Nazareth House was part of a series of Nazareth houses founded by the Sisters of Nazareth, a Catholic congregation. It served as an orphanage in 1945 and should have been a safe place for Lita's children to live until she was more capable. Unfortunately, it would later be described as a cesspool and breeding ground for abuse, with children coming forward years later with lawsuits and charges over physical, emotional, mental, and even sexual abuse taking place. It would eventually close its doors to children and was converted to an assisted living facility years later. Jackie would live in this environment for 11 years until she was 13 years old. Although she would never admit to experiencing any abuse personally, Jackie would tell stories of the nuns having to go door to door begging for food and money to sustain the orphans and recalls the squalor of living in the orphanage separated from her brothers as they kept boys and girls in different buildings. Clinical research has shown that separating children from their mother within the first two years of the child's life leads to an overwhelming feeling of abandonment, rejection, worthlessness, guilt, and helplessness, even for short periods of time. Children later experience higher delinquency rates, higher teen birth rates, and are two to three times more likely to end up in jail as adults. These were Jackie's building blocks as she left the orphanage at 13 years old and went to care for her sick mother. The reunion would be short-lived as Lita would die shortly after Jackie graduated from high school at only 55 years old. Jackie would find herself abandoned again. This time she would search for the connection and love that she lacked in the arms of men and became pregnant the year that her mother passed away. On April 2nd, 1963, Jackie gave birth to Don, a son. The baby's father would soon abandon her as well, and not wanting to raise a child on her own, she placed the baby for adoption. Continuing her tumultuous path, Jackie became pregnant in 1964 again, giving birth on July 8, 1965 to a baby girl named Anne. Her lover, who was already in a relationship, abandoned Jackie, and Anne was quickly placed for adoption. Dr. Ablo highlights the quick succession of adoptions as an indicator that Jackie was not able to connect with the children she was bearing, due largely to her attachment dysfunction that had resulted from her own abandonment as a baby. A year later, Jackie became pregnant a third time and had a third child from a different man, and again, she was abandoned. This son, John, she also had planned to give up for adoption, but was convinced by the child's pediatrician that she couldn't keep having babies and giving them away. Although Jackie would keep John, the mother and child would never bond. As John became older, that lack of bonding and emotional connection with his mother would manifest itself in John's behavior as John grew up as a delinquent. When Jackie met Lee Peterson, she would be a single mother, but as they brought their families together, John would be sent away to live with a relative, with Jackie refusing him the ability to return home. Lee Peterson, Scott's father, grew up poor. It is highly probable that poverty had an extremely negative impact on Lee who would want to elevate his status in life. For Lee, the ends always justified the means, and he was unscrupulous. He lived beyond his means, driving Ferraris and Rolls Royces that he couldn't afford, and using an alias to avoid bill collectors when he couldn't pay the bills. Family members would describe him as cold and detached, who never bonded with his children and left his previous marriage to escape children that he didn't like having around. This might explain why John was sent away. Jackie and Lee were two perfect pieces of a dysfunctional puzzle. Both appeared to have dissociative personalities and an inability to emotionally connect with their offspring. Scott would be their only child together. In October of 1972, shortly after his birth, 
Scott contracted pneumonia and had to be hospitalized and placed in a breathing bubble for several weeks. This separation from his mother at his most initial moments of life would likely compound the lack of emotional connection he would later experience from both Jackie and Lee. Scott's developmental psychology and his behavior as a child would assimilate to survive in the environment that he found himself in. He would learn to adapt by being the perfect child. He would avoid being rejected and thrown out like his other siblings had been. Jackie and Lee would describe their shiny baby boy as a golden child who was quiet and well-behaved. He was so well-behaved that Jackie and Lee once forgot him at a restaurant with the waiter having to chase him down yelling, Hey, you forgot your baby! This is most likely where Scott began developing his technique of mimicking behavior. By mirroring his parents, he gained acceptance, and so it was only natural that Scott took up golfing at an early age, as it was Lee's favorite pastime. Soon Scott was beating Lee at golf, and it made his father proud. Lee would brag about his golden boy, saving no expense to give him the best education, the best opportunities, the best childhood experiences, as he and Jackie painted the picture of the all-American family, a family that was on the right side of the tracks. Long gone were the days of the orphanage where Jackie had to rely on the begging nuns for food. Long gone were the days of poverty for Lee. They had elevated their status in the world and now had a golden boy to carry on the legacy. But Scott was living a duplicitous life and it was already taking its toll on the golden boy. What to me is very unique with Jackie is that she was so very young whenever she went to stay at the orphanage. And, you know, some people will say that up until two is probably the most critical phase of a young child's life, especially with bonding and the nature versus nurture piece. But that actually goes up until they're six, seven, eight years old. So when you think about that, she spent those years away from a mother and away from a father. And I can almost bet you that her mother wasn't even showing up for those weekly visits. Maybe she was in the beginning, you know, showing up every week to see the kids, but that probably began to space out as time went on. And it probably became more of a, that's just where they were going to be. And that's a long time to be there. 13 years is a long time to be in the orphanage. And it was not a good place to be. The orphanage was a bad place to be. It, it was fraught with abuse, physical abuse, with them locking the kids in the closets, hitting them with rulers, punishing them regularly for multiple, multiple reasons. It was fraught with uh, sexual abuse, especially of the girls. And there's a lot of research that talks about siblings being separated and how damaging that is because already it's traumatizing for a child to be taken from their home as it is anyways so then you add on top of that that they're getting split from something that's familiar to them it becomes problematic for them they don't do as well in school they can have behavioral and psychological problems and that would manifest in probably all of them yeah and you're trying to understand as a, as a kid you're trying to understand what did i do wrong right why am i being thrown away and you don't understand well, dad got murdered. You don't understand. Well, mom's having a difficult time dealing with that. All you know is that you're not wanted. You're being thrown away. And this will become what allows her to arbitrarily just have kids and give them away. That's not a normal thing right. to carry a kid to term, have a baby and go, okay, I don't want this one. I don't want this one either. And I don't want this one. The other thing too, is that a lot of kids experience just like in foster care, whether it's from moving around so much or being exposed to different adults and adults that aren't treating you good, that are abusing you, they begin to each time lose their trust in the adults whose care they're in. And so because of that, that can create some disconnection as well with yeah. making connections in your regular life as you get older. Sure. And it's really crazy that this pediatrician convinces her to keep this last boy, John, before she meets Lee. I think part of her problem with her relationships was I don't think she was able to connect with those relationships either. I don't think she knew how to be in a relationship because she had never really been in one, not even a family relationship, not with her brothers, not with her mom, not with the nuns. 
Well, and then if she's not in a good relationship, so you're with somebody, you're with a married man and you get pregnant. Yeah, he's not going to want you to have that baby. So I think it made it easier for her. And because it was so easy for her mom to take her and leave her and basically not come back, that kind of transfers over to her. So that becomes something that she views as being normal. Eventually, Don finds his mother and he connects with her and he finds his sister, Anne. And he encourages his sister, Anne, to meet his mom as well. And so eventually those two children that were given up for adoption, they find their way to Jackie. Right. Anne talks about in her book, Blood Brother, that when she first went to go meet Jackie, she really expected for Jackie to have some type of explanation as to why she was put up for adoption. Or she wanted her to like have a sense of like, I felt bad, like I was struggling, I couldn't take care of you. Like she expected that narrative. Right. But she never got that narrative. It was more like, oh, hey, you know, what's going on? Like, like I haven't seen you forever. Like, you know, um, and I think it was something that that kind of sat not very well with Anne. I never thought you were going to catch up to me. Yeah, probably not. Yeah. <laughs> and she didn't act like, oh, you know, I, I always wondered where you were. I always wanted to know what you how you were doing. And when they reunite, it's super awkward for right. Anne, especially for Anne. Because she doesn't see like the nervousness in Jackie or the regret or like, I'm sorry. She never saw that from her. Um, and that's something that I don't think that Jackie was capable of. I don't think so either. You have Anne who is going to be uncomfortable. She doesn't know this person. She's got some questions. You know, you're expecting that that other person is also going to be, you know, uncomfortable. Like right. they're going to be nervous. And so when you're connected and now your energies are completely different. It's going to be strange. Well, this person isn't even uncomfortable. They're just cold. Like I'm some random person. And one thing Anne talks about when she talks about Jackie is that Jackie has a tendency to not tell the truth. Jackie has a tendency to stretch the truth a little bit to fit her whatever narrative she wants. It really allows you to see where Scott learned it from. Some of what would happen with the kids is experienced even while she's still pregnant with them. Mm. So I think even during her pregnancy, whatever feelings she's having, whatever she's telling herself, whatever, I think all of that is part of it as well. And I think what really made the big difference for Anne and for Dawn, so Dawn's the oldest and then Anne, is that they both were blessed to have gone to good homes. And so their direction in life was a lot different than the rest of the Peterson kids. And then when they get together, the only kid that they have together is Scott. And when he comes into the relationship, he left his kids with his ex. So growing up in the home was really only Scott and for a small time, John. And John is the one who he had his ID card and dyed his hair to look like him. Right. So what's interesting about all of this is that the exposure that Scott gets and that his brother gets to Jackie is very different than what Dawn and Ann get because Dawn and Ann get adopted off. Now, Lee Peterson, fast forward, she's met this guy, they have a kid together, he's going to be a good father, things are going to kind of move in the right direction, but no, Lee Peterson is basically the male version of Jackie Peterson. Right. And so they're a match made in hell. Basically. Yes. (laughs) So Lee Peterson comes to the relationship and he also appears to not want to be a family man and not really want to have kids or have anything to do with kids. And um, he also has a hard time making connections and, I believe that his life of living in poverty really played a large role in how he started feeling once he started making money and how he wanted people to perceive him. So it was more about the image. He needed everybody to see this image. And I think where he kind of gravitated to Scott really wasn't even about the fact that Scott was his son. It was that Scott was able to give a further illusion for him and Jackie of their family and how they appeared to the outside world. It gave them a status level upgrade, but it really wasn't about like caring about the direction that Scott went in or how Scott was doing or any of that. In the mind of Scott Peterson by Dr. Abelow, 
talks about how Lee tried to mold Scott into a mini version of himself, like doing the things that I do. He used to take him to work and he used to have him working at his, at his office and he would take him golfing. And so he was just making Scott into a smaller version of himself. And I don't think that he really emotionally bonded with Scott more so as he saw him as a, like almost like a, like a ham puppet. And as long as he did everything that he was told to do and he didn't cause any problems and he was quiet and he was, and he did what he was told and he did it well, he was accepted and he was praised. And that praise becomes what feeds Scott. He became conditioned. Yeah, to that praise. When he didn't get it, it bothered him a lot. At the beginning of Scott's life, we see that he's isolated in his air bubble when he gets pneumonia. What do you think the impact of that would be for a baby just being born? How much of an impact would that have on a child? Well, it depends. It depends on how long that separation is and if there's no contact whatsoever. Even with newborns, when newborns are sick and in the hospital, there's a lot of my kids were born premature. And I know that for my oldest daughter, I wasn't able to touch her for a certain period of time because just the stimulation took her heart rate out of range and was dangerous for her. So it kind of depends. But then I had a child who was in an oxygen tent in the hospital and I stayed the entire time with him in the hospital. And so I was able to take him out for short periods of time and hold him and cuddle with him and feed him and and those kind of things and then put him back in there. And so that allowed for that stimulation, for that touch, for that, you know, for that bonding to occur. But I chose to be there. I wasn't required to be there. I chose to be there. So knowing Jackie, she probably didn't choose to be there. And that time you're spending with random people, believe it or not, like there's a lot of research that supports the fact that kids know who their parents are, especially their mom, because they've been in their mom's womb. So he would have known that that person wasn't there and there would have been a lack of connection. We talked a little bit about Scott and how he begins to mimic the people around him. He is like his mom when he's with his mom. He's like his dad when he's with his dad. As he becomes older, we start to see the same behavior in his relationships. So when he's dating someone, he is like that person and he takes on their characteristics. We kind of talk about the fact that he was dating a vegetarian and when she was a vegetarian, well, he became a vegetarian as well. So he did not have his own identity at all and which made it easy for him to be able to do that because he didn't have his own identity. So he just assimilated to whatever environment he was in like a chameleon and rolled with it and that can happen by you being conditioned from a young age you know when your kid gets hurt and some people will be like oh and so the baby turns around and so the baby starts crying because the baby thinks that your reaction means they're supposed to be hurt and crying right Right. but what i used to do with my kids was when when they obviously weren't hurt and bleeding when they'd fall and get hurt when they'd look up at me surprised i would clap And I'd be like, oh, you're good, you know, and they'd be fine. They'd smile or they'd laugh or whatever. But when a kid looks to you and sees that their expression is supposed to be something or their reaction is supposed to be something, they mimic it. And that's what happens when you're young. And so if he was constantly experiencing that where if he responded in a certain way, he was shut down then he's going to be conditioned to assimilate to that environment based on how he's been conditioned this whole time. It also feeds into his ability to get close to girls because it really helps him with the women. The more that he's like the person that he's trying to be with, the more they have in common or the more it seems like they have in common, the more things that they do together that she likes as opposed to what he likes. He never really comes up with his own desires his wants you know he just kind of goes with whatever everybody else wants and so you see this a lot in his relationships and then you see it with Lacey as well when he gets into a relationship with Lacey. Scott learned at a young age to suppress his wants and needs as Jackie and Lee taught Scott to view his needs as irrelevant to their needs. Dr. Ablow describes this indoctrination as a psychological, subtle process that could include something like not feeding Scott when he's hungry and feeding him when he's not, or feeding Scott what he dislikes and not feeding him what he likes, 
Over time, the child begins to view his wants as irrelevant. Through emotional manipulation, Jackie and Lee could avoid giving Scott affection or even stop communicating with Scott for prolonged periods of time to show their dissatisfaction with his behavior or his performance. This would teach Scott that he could effectively be removed from the family through isolation and solitude. As a result, Scott begins to suppress his emotions. He does this by a thin, grimace smile, a rigor mortis smile, as he describes it to Amber Fry during one of their dates. During the investigation, the smile presents itself every time Scott hears something he dislikes, disagrees with, or doesn't want to acknowledge. It's the same smile that members of the jury will see throughout the trial as evidence is presented. Sharon Rocha describes in her book for Lacey of a dinner that she was having with Scott and Scott's parents before the two families became adversarial. At this dinner, Jackie was complaining about Scott not allowing them to stay at his house and instead insisting that they remain at the Red Lion Inn. Jackie made a comment mocking Scott about needing his privacy. This irked Scott, who looked at his plate and smiled. Without responding to his mother's poke, Sharon could sense he was annoyed. This was a typical interaction between mother and son. Lee would say that his son was being targeted because he didn't show emotion. But the reality is that Scott could not show emotion, not real emotion. He had always been forced to hold it internally behind his rigor mortis smile. Because Scott had spent his entire life mimicking those around him, he did not have a sense of self. His sense of self was driven by the praise and admiration of those around him. His family calling him a golden boy. His high school recognizing him as a golf champ. Girls finding him attractive. As a result, he had no internal drive or pursuit of ambitions. Everything was based on those around him. This becomes evident when he decides to go to Arizona State University to pursue a pro golf career. This is not something that he particularly wanted, and as a result, when he gets to Arizona, he doesn't make the team, and unceremoniously, he returns to California. While in Arizona, he told Lacey that he had lived with an older woman. She would have been in her upper 20s to early 30s. His half-sister, Ann Bird, would write in her book, blood brother that scott had impregnated a girl in arizona and jackie had flown there to assist with the girl getting an abortion it is unknown if scott had wanted to keep the child or not but it was evident that jackie was not going to let her golden boy father a child out of wedlock it would sully the image that the petersons were building It is highly probable that Scott had been conditioned throughout his young life to view pregnancy and childbirth as a negative experience. After all, his mother had three negative pregnancies, two of which ended in adoption. His father didn't like kids, resulting in a divorce, and Scott had participated in the abortion of his own child. All the ingredients for what was to come. His mimicking behavior carried over into his relationships as Scott became the perfect quarter. Red roses became his calling card to the women who he would woe. He would tell Sean Sibley, Amber Fry's best friend in Anaheim, that he had dated a girl in college in San Luis Obispo for six months who had been a vegetarian. As a result, Scott had become a vegetarian during those six months as well. The day the girl got on a plane and left upon graduation, Scott went straight to a burger joint and ate a hamburger. When he began dating Lacey, who loved wine and eventually worked as a wine distributor after graduation, Scott became an expert in wine. Lacey loved to cook and was a Martha Stewart superfan, with Lacey even taking cooking courses in Italy. Scott mastered the kitchen and became a fantastic cook. When he began dating Amber, who was a devout Christian, Scott took to the Bible, reading verses to Amber, adding God to his vocabulary in discussion with Amber, and even ordered a fake degree for theological studies a week before Lacey's disappearance that detectives found in his home. Scott's primary vice was his need for praise, and this presented in him chasing women constantly. He flirted with the bartender at his wedding. He cheated multiple times while in college with multiple women. 
He would tell his sister Ann Bird that he had multiple one-night stands and that he was a member of the Mile High Club twice. And he would have an affair with Amber Fry. None of this was about sex for Scott. It was about praise and recognition. By betting these multiple women and getting them to accept him, he was valued, he was accepted, he mattered, even if just for a moment. To be everything to everyone, Scott couldn't be anyone at all. And so Scott was void of his own persona. Scott was no one. This presented itself in his constant complex lies, extremely detailed and intricate lies that even Scott seemed to believe as truths. We would eventually hear some of these lies in his calls with Amber Fry with fake service disruption, tells of white rabbits that come out of nowhere while he's jogging on a country path that never existed, and a fake picture of him fishing in Alaska on a trip he never took. Scott's lies would be the life he would wish for. A life of leisure, a bachelor's life free of constraint and responsibility. A life where he can pursue praises of women who find him irresistible. Scott would make a comment to Amber Fry one day while at a restaurant when Amber returns from the bathroom about a gay waiter hitting on him. He would tell her it's totally flattering when another guy finds you attractive. Ann Bird would tell a story about Scott going out with some friends to a gay bar and coming home depressed and down because no one had hit on him the whole night. Scott needed praise to survive like he needed air to breathe. It's why he couldn't divorce Lacey, and it's why he refuses to admit what he's done. If this truly is is who he is, then even in a work setting, he's going to be that employee who's constantly seeking that praise, even when he's really not doing much of anything. He's wanting to be praised for not even going above and beyond, but just doing the bare minimum. But also, he has a pattern of lying, just like his mother. He's been doing it for so long that he's quick with it. It's like a quick comeback. So the reflex. Yeah. The problem with his lies is they're not just regular lies. It's not like a lie where you go, hey, I went running when I didn't go running. No, his lie is like, I went running and I saw a deer and it almost hit me and I jumped out of the way. And, you know, his lie is very, very complex. With him, I think there's an extreme in that he can do it so easily. You know, it's not something that he really has to think about or stress about. Like it is instinctual for him. The other thing is that he's not worried about being caught. Because he doesn't have any remorse. He gets caught in college cheating. And his response is, sorry, deal with it. That's basically his response. And when he does get caught, like for example, on the, his graduation, Lacey shows up and puts a layer around his neck and he's sitting next to the girl he's been dating. And she kisses him. And so this girl's like, wait a minute, I thought I was your girl. And Scott has no reaction. He has no explanation. It's just normal. Because he's acting like she ain't there. <laughs> well, in his mind, she doesn't really matter. And which, he doesn't, which is what he's been learning. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It does make him the perfect quarter because he can lie so well and he pretends to be what everybody wants him to be. And he knows these girls want the red roses. They want the wine. He, when, he, when he goes out with Amber, he puts a strawberry in her glass and fills it with champagne. And she's, oh, this is so beautiful. And this is... It's a fantasy that he's fulfilling based off of what he thinks she wants. And when she tells people about Scott, people think he's too good to be true. And that's a flag. It is a flag. It's I a, would think it's funny. It's a flag. <laughs> it's, a, it's definitely a flag. He is definitely the perfect chameleon. What do you think about his whole comment about the gay guys finding him attractive? What's your thoughts on that? I think he had a low self-esteem when he didn't feel like he was being hit on to him. That was the, well, they're not finding me attractive. And why are they not finding me attractive? Like I thought I was attractive. And so I think it bothered him. Yeah. It's rejection. But the truth is, is they probably looked at him and were like, he's totally straight. <laughs> yeah. Ain't hitting on him. You know, um, it was probably something completely logical, but he took it very personal. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I think so too. It was a, a form of rejection for him. 
you know, when he turned 30, he didn't want to celebrate his birthday because he was going through this whole midlife crisis. He, he told Lacey he was having a baby and he was turning 30. And I think it was because he was feeling like as he's getting older, he was losing that allure of that shiny young guy who's just attractive to all the girls and all the girls want him. And I think he was feeding off of that. And that was important to him. And he was going to lose that. With Scott craving praise from anyone who was willing to give it and transitioning from a male copy of Lacey to a male copy of Amber, as he begins to fall in love with Amber, we're forced to look at the psychological factors that would allow Scott to cross the line of human decency and commit a heinous crime like murder. In analyzing Scott's psyche, we use Dr. Jim Fallon's trifecta of diminished frontal cortex activity, a cocktail of the warrior DNA genetics and historical trauma as key ingredients to drive someone to murder, as factors for the proper ingredients to make a killer. To effectively disassociate and present with such complete lack of empathy as we experience with Scott, we hear romancing Amber a day after Lacey's disappearance, there's a high probability that Scott has a diminished frontal orbital cortex. Although his brain hasn't been scanned to determine this, it's highly probable. We can also agree that Scott potentially has some of the warrior genes in his genetic makeup. These genes are transferred to boys from their mothers, and Jackie appears to have a callousness and a lack of empathy based on her life decisions. Finally, although there's no physical or sexual abuse of Scott, we can see a deep level of psychological abuse in Scott that stems from his mother's detachment and void of connection to her son. This presents in his mimicking behavior and lack of self-worth. When assessing Scott's psychosis using the dark tetrad, which include narcissism, Machiavellianism, psychopathy, and sadism, we find some correlation there as well. Scott is definitely a narcissist, which stems from his inability to function without constant praise. He has a constant obsession with being seen as intelligent, handsome, and successful. His lies drive that perception in others to view him as he wishes to be viewed and not as he is. When one of his teachers says Scott was kind of smart in an interview, Scott responds with, I'm very smart. Scott also has a high level of Machiavellianism. This is also a trait that his father, Lee, exhibits. The end always justifies the means for Scott. Men with a high dose of Machiavellianism tend to be charismatic and charming. Typically, these types find it easy to move away from close relationships when they no longer serve their purpose. We see this behavior in Scott with the girls that he cheats on when he's in college, often being non-responsive to their outburst or anger when he's caught. He easily shifts away from Lacey as he focuses his affection on Amber. Scott is psychotic and displays psychopathy, not only in his decisions, but also in his behavior. This antisocial disorder often presents as an overwhelming calmness in the face of high-pressure situations. We see this with Scott on multiple occasions, but most predominantly in his first interrogation with Detective Broschini. He lacks any sense of guilt, even going so far as to tell Diane Sawyer bold-faced lies that can easily be disproved, and he is extremely dishonest and potentially a pathological liar, lying about the mundane, even when the lie serves no purpose. Where Scott is found lacking is in the sadism personality disorder. His lack of sadism may be largely due to a lack of exposure to violence growing up. He doesn't display any factors of this disorder and may be why he chose a soft kill method for Lacey's murder over a violent act. This would explain his comment to Diane Sawyer where he exclaimed, violence against women is unapproachable. I think everybody sitting at home wants the answer to the same question. Did you murder your wife? No, no. I uh, just thought and I had absolutely nothing to do with her disappearance. And, and use the word murder, and yeah, I mean, that is a, a possibility. Um, it's not one we're ready to accept, and it creeps in my mind late at night and early in the morning. And during the day, all we can think about is the right resolution is to find her well. But as you know, increasingly, in the public, Suspicion has turned on you. Yes, definitely. Did you ever hit her? Did you ever injure her? No, no. My God, no. Um, violence towards women is unapproachable. It is the most disgusting act to me. Scott. 
got really received the perfect storm, you know, between his mom having the life that she had, his dad having the life that he had, and then them together bringing him into the world really was the start. So when they talk about him being this person long before or developing into this person long before, that's accurate because he didn't become this monster after he married Lacey. No, he was becoming this monster long ago. So I feel like it was a a recipe that was watered and fed and it grew. I think it took root and it was rotted and it just continued to rot away. I think it's really hard sometimes because people assume that abuse is going to look a certain kind of way. Here you see Scott who is pretty much pampered. He's pampered physically. He's got the best schools. He goes on the most vacations, lives in the biggest house. But the psychological abuse that he gets from his mom and his father is enough to push him over the edge. And people assume, you know, people assume that when somebody has money, like, oh, you're born with a silver spoon and you've never had to go through anything bad and you've never had to experience anything bad. Like I grew up in this bad area. But what you don't understand is that you could have grown up in a bad area, had an amazing family, had a very loving family, had a very close knit family. And then you have this kid who's raised in a very wealthy family who has no connection with his family or her family, who has no stimulation of anything positive and so they're different lifestyles but you're receiving different things you know your environment might be different but your connections and people in your village could be the same the sadism is the only thing that i haven't been able to recognize in anything that i've that i've read that i've researched where i see anything honestly even remotely that really shows any type of you know, sadistic behavior of his. Like you said, I I don't think that he really had that. I don't think he was exposed to that. I don't think there was abuse between Jackie Peterson and Lee Peterson. There wasn't abuse there between them two. I just think there was no connection, no emotional connection. And it wasn't a home where emotions were okay to have. It was a home where emotions needed to be suppressed. And in one of the situations where Jackie was at, I can't remember whose house, I think it was at Sharon's house, where they were watching the news, and one of the reporters was talking negatively about Scott, and Scott was began losing his temper. And Jackie quickly said, Scott, you need to calm down. And Scott immediately stopped and sat down. So that's very telling. Very telling of what his childhood probably was like. Right. And when you think about that, so you kind of paint a picture of what's happening with him, with his mom as an adult, as a child, when you don't allow your children to express themselves, obviously you don't want them to do anything drastic, but it's part of learning who they are. It's part of developing your sense of self. It's part of developing your ability to make critical decisions and those kind of things. And so when that process is interrupted, then there's going to be a disconnect. Let me ask you, he's so good at mimicking Why do you think he has a hard time pretending the emotions to Miss Lacey and Connor? You hear about him crying to Amber when he tells him about his lost, his wife is lost when he's faking it on, on the 9th of December and he breaks down crying and she's saying he can't barely breathe. He's sobbing and he's in tears and the snot's running out his nose. Like why can't he have that emotion about Lacey and Connor, but he can pretend to have it with Amber? I don't think that he's attempted to try to spin that scenario before. So I think that was difficult for him. It's like playing a role that you've never played before. You know, you're yeah. used to playing funny roles and now you're playing a serious role. You know, a lot of times as viewers, we'll see that and be like, man, He ain't cut out for this role. I think that was probably his case. He wasn't used to having to play the, he could do the whole smile when, when you're upset, he could do the whole be quiet when you're angry. But when it came to be sad, when you're not sad, I think that was hard for him because that wasn't something he was used to having to do. It wasn't in his toolbox. No, he didn't have that tool. When we turn to the experts that have assessed Scott Peterson's psychology, we find many that align with our perspective. 
These include notable experts like Dr. Alexandra Stevens, a forensic psychologist who has emphasized that individuals like Peterson often demonstrate traits associated with narcissism or even sociopathy. She mentioned Scott's ability to compartmentalize to separate different facets of one's life entirely. Dr. Alexandra Stevens is no stranger to the labyrinth of the human mind. With over 15 years diving into the psyches of some of the most perplexing individuals, she offers a unique lens to understand Scott Peterson. When discussing the potential traits of narcissism in Peterson, Dr. Stevens points to several indicators. She describes the narcissist's need for admiration, their sense of entitlement, and a lack of empathy. It's not just about vanity, she explains. It's about an inflated sense of self-importance. They believe that they're special, and because of that, they expect preferential treatment. But Dr. Stevens quickly adds a layer of depth to this analysis. Narcissism, she explains, isn't a monolithic trait. It exists on a spectrum. While some might have mild narcissistic tendencies, others exhibit severe forms. Nearing what professionals label as narcissistic personality disorder. The narcissist needs to be the center of attention. And anybody else that's getting any attention is a threat. Anybody else that's getting laughs, anybody else that's getting focused on, anybody else that's of interest, we can get rid of them because all the attention needs to be on the narcissist. They have a really pathological need for admiration. They need people to tell them how smart they are, how interesting they are, how special they are, show them how entitled they are. And if that doesn't happen, they get very upset. They get very frustrated and they can go on the attack. And when we say a lack of empathy, these folks just don't have the ability to stand in somebody else's shoes. Somebody might show up late to work and you say, oh, you're never late. What, what happened? They might say, oh, just as I was leaving this morning, my dog got out and was hit by a car and killed my dog. What would be a normal reaction? People would go, oh my gosh, you must feel terrible. I'm so sorry. Not a narcissist. A narcissist doesn't have the ability to identify with that person's feelings. So they might say, huh, well, you're here now. Or, uh, what kind of dog? Huh, well, you'll have to get another one. So anyway, what I was wanting to talk to you about, what, they have no ability to reflect feelings. They have no ability to identify with what that person might be experiencing at the time and be empathetic. Now, this is different from sympathetic. I'm talking about empathetic, where they can identify with that person's feelings, put themselves in their position for a minute, and understand how they might be feeling. They don't have that ability, which is why it's very difficult for them to ever have a close relationship with anybody. So we're talking about a sense of self-importance and entitlement, preoccupation with fantasies. They create this world of how special and how important they are. They believe that they're special. They believe that they're unique. They're very exploitive. They're very arrogant. So you'll see them doing something that you would think, oh my gosh, they must be embarrassed about this. They don't read the room. You might see them saying or doing something that anybody would be embarrassed to say or do, and everybody in the room's rolling their eyes. The narcissist doesn't see that because they don't read the room. They're not interested in anybody's opinion. They just want to know that they're the focus of attention, and they assume everybody thinks they're as special and unique as they think they are. In Peterson's case, the ability to lead a dual life to compartmentalize his actions with Lacey and his affair with Amber Fry suggests a more profound ability to disconnect from the emotional ramifications of his decisions. However, Dr. Stevens also warns against hastily boxing Peterson into a neat category. The human psyche, she reminds us, is multifaceted. Sociopathy, for instance, is another area worth exploring. Sociopaths 
often lack remorse, can be incredibly charming and are master manipulators. But she emphasizes the danger of diagnosing from a distance. We can identify patterns and behaviors, she notes, but a complete understanding often requires deeper, direct evaluation. In essence, while the glimpses into Peterson's life provide telling clues, Dr. Stevens' insights remind us of the vast complexities of human behavior. A tapestry woven from biology, upbringing, environment, and personal choices. And in that intricate weave, the search for clear answers continues. Another perspective comes from Professor Leonard Matthews, a criminal profiler with over two decades of experience. He points out patterns seen in other cases, the charm that masks the deceit, the coldness hidden by everyday interactions, Yet he reminds us of the uniqueness of each case, stating each individual has their triggers, their breaking points, their reasons. Our job is to piece them together, but sometimes the puzzle remains incomplete. While these expert opinions shed light on possible psychological explanations, they all resonate with a common theme. The human mind is intricate and its motivations at times remain elusive. We can speculate, analyze, and theorize, but there's always an element of mystery, a part of the story that stays hidden in the shadows. As we try to understand the psyche of Scott Peterson, it becomes almost instinctual to compare him to other notorious individuals who've captured the public's attention. How does Peterson's profile align or diverge from other infamous criminals? First, there's Ted Bundy, charismatic, educated, and to many, the epitome of the guy next door. Like Peterson, Bundy's charm was a mask, concealing a depth of darkness that few could fathom. Both men seemed to live dual lives, masterfully maintaining a facade while harboring sinister secrets. But while Bundy's crimes were more numerous and violent, the psychological dance of deception bears an uncanny similarity, with Bundy being more sadistic and brutal in the execution of his crimes. Then there's Chris Watts, a more recent name. Like Peterson, Watts was a family man, and eerily, Watts too eliminated his family in the pursuit of a new life with the mistress. The media drew immediate parallels between the two, highlighting the chilling calm both displayed in the aftermath of their heinous acts. But, as Professor Leonard Matthews reminds us, while parallels exist, each criminal possesses a unique psychological blueprint. Some might be driven by impulse, others by meticulous planning. Some seek notoriety, while others wish to fade into obscurity. What ties them together is often a combination of narcissism, Machiavellianism, psychopathy, and sadism, allowing them to detach from the moral compass that guides most of society. In comparing Scott Peterson to other criminal profiles, we're not seeking to rank or categorize evil. Instead, we aim to understand the broader tapestry of human behavior, how societal pressures, personal choices, and psychological traits converge all together, pushing some to the very fringes of humanity. Psychology is very complex and there's no exact measure where you can say Ted Bundy is just like Chris Watts, like they're on the same level. There's things that are different. There's things that happen differently with their parents, with their environment, with their, so there's so it's, it's like, it's like putting three people next to each other and saying, I want you to cook this meal and put your own spin on it. So you've got these three mills and they're making the same mill. Let's say that they're making spaghetti. They're all making spaghetti, but they're all putting their own spin on it. That's what happens with each one of these individuals psychologically. So one person might put more salt. One person might put more pepper. And even though they all have salt and they all have pepper, they're going to taste different because they all have different levels of salt and pepper. Right. And I think the same goes for psychology when you're trying to, you know, look at somebody and say, well, what makes this person tick? What makes this person do what they're doing? They could have a lot of similarities. They might all have that one component, but one of them might have a component that's off the charts because maybe that kid was abused every single day, four times a day, whereas this other person was abused once a day. 
So those levels are going to be different. I don't think that there's ever going to be two individuals who you're going to be able to put side by side and say they have the same psychological makeup. It's just not going to happen. Right. And I think it's really easy for people to think of it as like like a code. Your number is one, two, three, four. His number is one, two, three, four. You guys are exactly the same. And what we realize is that when we look at those three factors that Dr. Fallon talks about, which is preorbital frontal cortex, the diminishment of that part of the brain is going to be on a spectrum. Right. It's not going to be, it's either all there or all gone. It's going to be, well, maybe it's 75%, maybe it's 85%, maybe it's 30%. That's like your salt or your pepper of what you're deciding to put into the, into the mix. And then you have your 10 DNA genetics warrior genes. And somebody may have 10, but another person may have five. One person may have one. So again, you're on a spectrum. So that combination, then you have trauma. Well, you can have sexual trauma. You can have physical trauma. You can have psychological trauma. You can have all three. You can have a combination. The severity can be different. Right. So there you're, you're really talking about probably a million different variables of combinations that you put together to come out with the psychology that creates a person who is capable of committing a murder. And the way that presents itself is going to be based off of their experience, their exposure to violence, their surroundings. Are they nurtured? Are they not nurtured? Or are they having good experiences? You can even have someone who has no prefrontal orbital cortex activity at all. You can have someone who has all 10 of the warrior genes. You can have someone who's had the most traumatic experience that you could possibly imagine. And that person doesn't become a murderer because they have good influences in their life. They have a good role model. They have good mentors. They have good friends. They have a good environment. Maybe not when they were growing up, but now they have those things. They have good relationships. They have a good person who is a good partner to them. Like that all can be the thing that stops a person from becoming a killer. Right. So just because all those markers are there doesn't mean this person is going to be a killer. If that was the case, it'd be so easy to just be like, okay, uh, you go ahead and step forward. Uh, you're going to be a killer. So I need you to go ahead and step into your cell. <laughs> you know, right. I think there's a movie called Minority Report that at one time like, would look into, into the past and go, oh, this person has a probability of committing a murder. And then they would go arrest him even before he committed the murder. You know what I'm saying? And it's kind of like that kind of mindset. There's no indicators. Right. These are all just markers that we can see. And most people can look at their lives and say, man, if my life would have continued in that direction or if I would have, you know, I would have been a completely different person. That's how it goes sometimes. Yeah. As parents and as people in a village of children, sometimes we're not good with our with our recipe methods. Sometimes we we shake things up and we shouldn't. Sometimes we put things in there that we shouldn't and without even realizing it, not intentionally. Unfortunately, sometimes we can have an influence on that. The trial of Scott Peterson wasn't just a legal proceeding. It was a media spectacle, a national event that had millions glued to their screens, hanging on every twist and turn. Peterson, clean cut and often emotionless, sat in the defendant's chair, the weight of evidence and public opinion pressing down on him. Throughout the trial, the prosecution painted a picture of a man trapped by his own web of deceit, willing to go to the extreme links for freedom from familial responsibility. Evidence such as the boat purchase and concrete anchors became central pieces of the narrative. His relationship with Amber Fry, underscored by recorded phone calls, further deepened the intrigue. Yet, what stood out to many wasn't just the evidence, but Peterson's own demeanor. Some saw a stoic figure, perhaps overwhelmed by the gravity of his situation. Others perceived arrogance, a man confident in his ability to escape the noose of justice. When the verdict was read, guilty of first-degree murder for Lacey and second-degree murder for their unborn son, Connor, the nation exhaled a collective breath, either of relief or disbelief. But Scott did not react, only smiled his rigor mortis smile. And with his sentencing to death, the legal chapter closed, but the public discourse? That continues to rage on. In the aftermath, Scott Peterson became a fixture in the annals of American crime. Documentaries, books, debates, his name continues to echo long after the trial's conclusion. B. 
Beyond the media frenzy, the case forced society to confront uncomfortable realities. The masks people wear, the secrets lurking in suburban homes, and the links some might go to to escape perceived shackles of responsibility. Part of Scott's downfall, especially during the trial, was his lack of emotion, especially when it came to testimony from Sharon Rocha, who he called mom, from family members who talked about, you know, when they presented evidence like like the remains of Connor and Lacey, like he was stoic, no emotion. And that really seemed cold when everybody else in the courtroom is crying. And you can't turn around and say Scott couldn't show emotion because when his father took the stand in his defense uh, during the sentencing phase, he cried openly, weeping. He also cried when his mom took the stand, not as much as his dad. I think he really was more connected to his dad than to his mom. But he cried because they were saying, I'm proud of Scott. I love Scott. I look up to him. That was his Achilles heel. I know it was. He had the emotion in him. It just needed to be touched the right way for him to have an emotional reaction. But he never showed that reaction for Lacey or for Connor, who he purported to love. And so what it shows is, one, it gives the appearance that the only reason that you're upset is because obviously you've disappointed your family. Right. You know? no longer the golden boy. Right. But it also shows, you know, I often tell people that a lot of times we tend to humanize murderers and killers and serial killers. And we come up with all these reasons of why they've become who they've become. And we humanize them. We make people feel bad for them and make excuses for them. But then when we talk about the victims, we often glaze over them. And so it almost dehumanizes them. And so in Scott's case, when he's being stoic and that's what people are seeing, it gives the impression that he isn't impacted by the humanizing of a victim. Right. And it isn't just any victim. This is somebody that you have said that you love. This is your spouse. This is your unborn child. And so by him not having those emotions, He's not impacted by that humanization that everybody else is experiencing, which he should already have because this is somebody who's connected to him. Because Scott was never allowed to express emotion and he never really had his own personality, I don't think he had a playbook for how to respond in that particular environment. And so when he's being questioned by by Detective Broschini and he's asking them questions, he don't know when he's supposed to be angry. He doesn't know when he's supposed to be because he's not angry. He's really not angry. When he becomes angry, he acts angry. And you see that when the reporters are coming to his house and they piss him off and he reacts to that in an angry kind of way. But when he's being questioned and he's talking to reporters and he doesn't know the emotion that's supposed to go with his response. And so because he doesn't know the emotion, you get the blank stare and the rigor smile. He doesn't know how to react to it. The other thing, too, is that I think because he's so good with his lying that when he's asked questions that a normal person like something small that really catches people up is when you make comments like she was or and those were things that he was doing or saying the house instead of our home or, you know, and it's because he's so used to those elaborate lies that he would tell that he wasn't ready for telling something that needed to be right. Believable. Those are psychological slips that are subconscious. Yeah. It takes a lot of energy and a lot of focus to be consistent. When you're telling a lie, it's hard to remember all the aspects of those lies. And when you know the truth it's hard for your brain to keep that stuff together. And that's why you use the wrong tenses. And the other thing too, is that something that can trip people up when they're trying to lie is that when somebody's trying to keep a lie straight, they're constantly thinking about what their answer is going to be. So when you ask this, this is what I'm going to answer. 
But if you say something that's triggering to them, then it interrupts that pattern of them thinking of what they're going to say next. And so a lot of times that's when something will come out as well that they haven't prepared themselves for. And so it comes out obviously not how they want it to come out. Yeah. And the way that a liar will counteract that is they'll repeat your question. They'll say, you want to know where I was? You want to know what I was wearing? To give themselves time. Yeah, because yeah, now like they've got to gotta, they gotta change course. They got to they gotta remember the lie and make sure that whatever they say next is in alignment with the story of how it's been going. So mm-hmm. it, it really causes you to do some mental gymnastics. Right. And he, it, you know, the other thing too is that, you know, like in his interview with Diane Sawyer, when he made the comment about how he had watched all the stuff about, you know, guys who kill their wives, um, you basically just told everybody that you've done looked all this stuff up. And so yeah. you, you know how you're supposed to respond. You know what they, what people expect. Why were you doing that? <laughs> and I think another part of his mistake in that conversation too is when he said, you know, you say murdered and yeah, that's a possibility. And, and I think about that late at night and then he realized, well, shit, I should have been thinking about this the whole time. And I think about it in the morning and I think about it in the afternoon. Well, so always, right? (laughs) So you always think about it, but you could tell that wasn't what he was going to say because that's not what the reality was. The reality is that he doesn't think about it at all through the day because he's calling Amber. Yeah. And at night when he's getting ready to go to bed, he's thinking about it. It's a little slip of the truth that comes out in his BS and so it's, it's very, very telling, very telling. As we conclude this deep dive into the life and psyche of Scott Peterson, we're left with more than just facts and timelines. We're confronted with the unsettling truth about the human condition and its capacity for duality. People, even those we think we know, often harbor depths that remain unseen and misunderstood. In our quest to understand, we've journeyed through his early years. We've examined the dualities of his life. We've weighed expert opinions, and we've relived the tumultuous days of the trial. But perhaps the most profound realization is the acknowledgement of our own limitations in truly deciphering the complexities of the human soul. Scott Peterson's story challenges us, urging us to look beyond the surface, to question our own biases, and to grapple with the mysteries of human behavior. It's a stark reminder that behind the headlines and behind the verdicts and the public's opinion, lies a complex web of emotions, choices, and circumstances. As we move forward, let's carry with us not just the story, but the lessons that we learn. The importance of empathy, the pursuit of understanding, and the recognition that each of us in our own way grapples with our own duality. Thank you for joining me on this, well, thank you for joining us on this journey. Until next time, keep questioning, keep reflecting, and always seek the truth that lies beneath the rigmortis smile. And that's a wrap on today's investigation, fellow detectives. If you found this episode both enlightening and captivating, then please subscribe to our podcast show and our Patreon. Leave a review. And hit that like button. Share our podcast with others and engage with us on our website and social media platforms. You can find us on all major podcast platforms as well as our website at www.bodyofcrimepodcast.com where you can access all of our episodes and bonus content including valuable resources. By expanding our community, we believe we can make a greater impact in our pursuit of truth and in shedding light on crucial cases. If there's a case that you'd like for us to cover or a personal story you'd like to share, please don't hesitate and contact us through our website. We always welcome your feedback and suggestions. Until next time, stay sharp and thank you for tuning in to the Body of Crime Podcast. Podcast. Bye.